You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. Um, David, um, how are you and uh, how are you coping with the Sydney lockdown? Oh, well, lockdown doesn't make much difference to me. My, I work from home. Um, Giles, I'm well. I trust our listeners are well. Uh, no doubt we'll see a peak in uh, electricity uh, uh, residential electricity consumption as a result of this but uh can't think it's good for the economy the longer these lockdowns continue but there we have it well there you go um as a virus about um now look um this week we've been hearing um a fair bit of news about battery storage projects it seems to be sort of um raising um its head again we've had um agl talking about the early closure of one of its gas generation units in south australia at um, Torrens uh, B, um, which was interesting, and they're going to go ahead with their first um, big battery that they will actually own themselves um, later this year. Um, another small company called Mao Ning, which is supposed to be building batteries for AGL in New South Wales. Uh, it also announced um, plans or sort of, um, yes, it sort of we, we got news of its plans for a big battery in South Australia as well. And the Victoria Big Battery has um, reached its half- halfway point in Victoria. And we thought that because Big Battery is in the news, I thought it would be a good idea to um, bring in Gary Bryant from Alinta. He's the head of um, um, asset development with Alinta. And uh, we did a story just last week about the new Big Battery that they're planning at Port Headland. And it's a fairly interesting story about what's happening in these off-grid locations or small grid locations. I think it's probably a better, better, better word for it. And particularly with the big mining companies and the way that they're viewing this technology change because it's kind of fascinating they seem to be going even quicker than the rest of the grid so um gary bright from alinta thanks for joining the podcast uh you're welcome giles hello david and hello to the listeners gary um we wrote a story last week about the port headland battery now this is really interesting because it's actually a four-hour battery uh that will be built next to a gas generator an existing gas generator that you've got in port headland and adjacent or in conjunction with a rather large solar farm 90 megawatts which is pretty good for that part of the grid just tell us a broad outline of of what you're doing and why in what way is it different to the current battery that you've got at Mount Newman, which um, we've talked about before. But maybe just the first question, what are you doing at Port Headland and why? Uh, So Port Headland, we are responding to our customers' uh, quite ambitious uh, carbon reduction targets that that have been announced. Uh, uh, I think it's it's quite um, public what uh, Fortescue and and BHP and uh, Rio Tinto uh, are attempting to do in terms of their uh, carbon reduction ambitions. Uh, we supply uh, some of these mining customers in Port Hedland and in response to those uh, desires, um, we're offering a, um, a renewable energy uh, solution uh, for those customers. Uh, and in order to have a substantial and meaningful amount of re- renewable energy from solar, um, we feel that you need to have uh, a reasonably 
large battery uh, there in order to maximise the amount of solar energy you can uh, generate and time shift some of that energy to the evening so that you can get the you know, a 50% carbon reduction uh, uh, for those customers. And the advantage with a, a large battery operating in parallel to a, a gas turbine plant is uh, gas turbines uh, are notorious for poor efficiency and relatively high carbon emissions at part load. Uh, and with a large battery there that you're able to charge uh, from the gas turbines during the evening, you're able to operate the gas turbines at full load to charge the battery and then turn them off, which also increases the efficiency of the gas turbine. So you're getting two benefits from having a, a large battery in that system. One is the energy shifting of solar, and the other one is to really support the most efficient dispatch of the, of the gas turbines. The difference here is that at Newman, it's, a, it's a, what we call a, a high power battery. Its, its purpose is to act as a virtual generator. Um, so in the event that a gas turbine in service at high load trips, the battery can take over for enough time for a standby gas turbine to start uh, and take up the load. So you're not operating gas turbines at part load uh, just for spinning reserve. Uh, that's not the primary purpose of the one at Port Hedland. It's very interesting, Gary. Uh, um, we could talk. We can talk about the Port Hedland one, which uh, which I definitely do want to talk about. But I, I'd like to just go back to the Newman one for a minute and put it because I someone was telling me that uh, you were one of the first people to recognise the potential to use batteries uh, coupled with a, a grid forming inverter to to actually act as a power station and to sort of act to control the grid. Uh, as such as it is at Mount Newman, um, has, how has that system performed for you? Uh, I think I saw a presentation where it had, it had gone through a whole range of incidents and basically performed it at least as well as, as modelled. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we've, we've been um, pleasantly surprised at the flexibility that the, the, the battery brought. We had confidence that the battery would be able to perform in line with what we've seen. But no one had actually um, constructed a battery to operate as a virtual generator uh, on a grid uh, anywhere else in the world. They're all being done uh, in support of, of generation on, on much larger grids. Uh, yeah, so we started construction of ours uh, first in Australia. We never told anybody about it because um, we never really do, t well at that time we weren't really t talking to anybody about our renewable plans as much as we do now. Um, so it was designed to um, act as a virtual spinning reserve, um, but it also showed it was able to peak shave, um, it was able to control the network by itself with no gas turbine in service until another gas turbine started. Um, pleasantly, it can handle uh, quite large drops in customer load uh, and absorb the, the excess generation so that you don't have gas turbines have cascading failures as a result of loss of customer load. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great... A great piece of kit, and uh, that that Newman power station, as 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 I don't understand it very well, sends power to Roy Hill, one of the iron ore mines there. And I get a bit confused when I look at the map of electricity in that part of West Australia. It seems to me that there's a link to the Tom Price mine, and then a link all the way uh, back to to Dampier. Uh, electricity transmission and that some of those other sites also have batteries on them um, or will do. Could you just talk a little bit about 
the sort of transmission infrastructure over there and to the, the extent to which it is interconnected or, or plans to be interconnected? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, part of the world. Uh, throughout the, the Pilbara and East Pilbara, there are, there are four, uh, let's call it five, distinct uh, transmission networks. Uh, the main transmission network is called the uh, Northwest Interconnected System, and that's comprised of the Horizon Power System that extends between Carrara and Port Hedland, uh, and you know, our power station connects in at the Port Hedland end there, which is the Port Hedland power station which we mentioned earlier. Uh, the Rio Tinto network and the Horizon Power network are connected uh, down at um, Carrara, Dampier, uh, and the Rio Tinto network extends south to Tom Price and then uh, uh, east across to uh, Hope Downs. Uh, so that's one one large network, but it's operated by uh, a number of different parties, and uh, some legislation was actually just enacted for an open access regime across the Horizon uh, and Alinta components of that network uh, just last week, actually. There's a second network, uh, which is our Newman network, which extends from the Newman power station up to Roy Hill, as you said, but it also extends across to Christmas Creek and Cloud Break now. Um, I think uh, Renew Economy had an article about the 60 megawatt solar field that we're putting in there uh, on our Newman network uh, uh, last year, I believe it was. Uh, and then there's the uh, Ironbridge network, which is kind of sitting in the middle, which is what Fortescue have uh, announced as part of their Pilbara Energy Connect uh, project, which is, a, which is again a, an islanded network, uh, not, not connected to any other uh, network. And, so, uh, and then there's the BHP network, which extends from Newman up to Yandy. And the way that the transmission system has been built up around the Pilbara is very similar to the rail. Um, the, the miners um, see this as uh, essential infrastructure. They want to be able to control it. Uh, they don't want people to have access to it. And so all of this electrical infrastructure has been built um, purposely for each of the individual, uh, individual miners. Uh, and as everyone has seen for quite some period of time, there's an enormous amount of uh, value that can be unlocked from uh, uh, all of those transmission networks operating together. But more importantly, uh, we see that uh, the diversification of load and geography uh, could really support quite high levels of renewable penetration and mine electrification if we can just figure out how to, how to get all that to work together. And can will you be able to figure it out? I mean, presumably if there's value to be had from it, uh, uh, and everyone can share in the value. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it'll be a problem, but I bet it is. Uh, I think it has been, um, but uh, as evidenced by how um, both uh, Fortescue and Roy Hill uh, are using the same infrastructure for electricity uh, at Chichester Operations and for Roy Hill's uh, operations, uh, you can see that some of those some of those uh, carbon desires are starting to come to the fore. Um, the cooperation that's been recently shown between all of the all of the uh, miners and, and generators who uh, participate in the Northwest Interconnected System through that um, legislative framework uh, shows that there's a there's kind of a, a new era of cooperation, and that flows through to some of these uh, research uh, ventures that you see the various miners signing up to. So uh, there was the haul truck one for uh, BHP and Vale and Rio Tinto. Uh, you can see that there's a hydrogen one that uh, BHP and Fortescue uh, are working together on. So there's quite a lot of cooperation amongst the miners now as they, as they start to think about how they're going to meet their, uh, their carbon targets. Mm. I'll hand back to Giles in just one second. I just want to ask one more question about this, and that's just on the control 
system. I mean, if all those networks were connected, like if we looked at the NEM or even the S Southwest system, you, you end up having a centralised kind of dispatch system and a, a lot of kind of uh, 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 oversight of the whole thing. But if you were trying to do it efficiently with, uh, I guess, these grid-forming inverters and batteries, maybe the whole thing could run a lot more autonomously or, 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 or whatever. I'm just, how, how do, you, do you think about that at all? Uh, yeah, we think, about, we think about that a lot. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to any of the remote operation centres for the for the miners, but they are some of the most sophisticated control centres that that you would ever see. Um, they're not only controlling the electrical networks; they're controlling their rail port, uh, mining. Uh, these guys have all got autonomous trucks. Uh, that's driverless trucks. Uh, it's 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 an absolutely impressive um, setup in terms of the communications background and architecture. So I don't think there's a problem with um, the sophistication of what you need to have have that sort of uh, centralised control. Um, it's just really a, a bit of a paradigm shift for, for, for the miners to hand over uh, control of what is viewed to be uh, an essential input to their process, uh, and that, that may take time. Hmm. I'd just like to sort of get back to the, uh, the actual battery. Now, you talked about the success of the Mount Newman battery, and um, clearly that's been delivering some, some great returns for you. Simply, it's, uh, it's only like a 20-minute, it's 35 megawatts, and I think about 12 megawatt hours or something like that. So it's really only like a 20-minute battery, but that's all you really need it for, to sort of hold the grid together. If a gas turbine trips off, it steps in, another one's switched on, and that allows you to leave those backup turbines idle, so you're saving a lot on fuel costs and also emissions and I guess to, to, to some extent those sort of grid services if that's what we can call them have been um, the focus of all the batteries on the main grids um, they might be slightly longer storage um, possibly an hour or so but mo mostly that's what they're doing they're focusing on the frequency and services market and they're sort of testing out now synthetic inertia and grid forming inverters in the broader bigger market so I'm just fascinated by the idea that the Port Hedland battery will be a four-hour battery. And, and, and my guess is that you will probably build the first four-hour battery in Australia of any significant size. So maybe explain to the listeners about why a four-hour battery is now economic rather than just one that focuses on grid services. Um, I, I guess it's going to be the time shifting and the, the economies of the gas thing. And, and then I'm just wondering, when might that four-hour battery start to gain traction in an economic sense on the, on the bigger grid? Uh, well, you, you've sort of stumbled across the, uh, the, the economic consideration of our time. Um, if I go for a four-hour battery, like a one-megawatt four-hour battery, that would be the same as a, a two-megawatt two-hour battery, for example. And um, it comes down to what the construction costs from the suppliers are. They're, they're all kind of honing in on um, specific models in order to reduce their cost of production in order to make the, the, the overall construction cost lower and more competitive. Uh, and so uh, probably when we did the Newman battery, it, they were expensive, but they did have one hour, two hour and four hour models in most of the off the shelf type uh, battery arrangements. Um, but as the, as the battery costs have come down um, and the modularization has, has improved, um, we're not sure whether or not it will be a, let's say, a, a, um, a 60 megawatt, uh, or sorry, 30 megawatt four hour battery or a 60 megawatt two hour battery because um, the, the construction costs and, and uh, equipment costs are not that, that well known. 
what we do know is we need uh, we need uh, about 200 megawatt hours of storage in order to time shift enough energy to get our customers to their to their 50% renewable target using this solar gas hybrid solution, uh, and that's the driving force. Uh, and so, you know, charging and discharging a battery at uh, at 30 megawatts, which is kind of the, the the average unit size for a gas turbine in Port Hedland, that's where you end up with that 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 four hour battery size. So it's more to do with the amount of energy that we need to store rather than a particular amount of storage time. If that if that makes sense. So I'm interested in the cost side of things. I've always assumed, based on studies I've seen from NREL, and because it makes common sense, National Renewable Energy Labs in the USA, that a four-hour battery would be quite a lot cheaper than a one-hour battery because you would only need uh, one quarter the number of inverters. Like one inverter can run for four hours or it can run, you know, it doesn't matter how many hours it runs for it. It's... I'm sure you know this stuff better than me. And there are like, if I look at your Newman battery, I think there were 320 inverters according to a presentation you did about it. Uh, and then there's also the rest of the balance of system, you know, uh, costs uh, would also seem to be uh, less, you know, one air conditioning system, one, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but you're telling me the way that um, it's, the, people design these systems that, those economies may not be as obvious as they look. Yeah, I think the getting to a two-hour battery, those those economies um, certainly work. But going out to a four-hour, it, it's less less about the, the 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 inverters and the balance of plant costs at that point in time, from what we can see. So we're going through this full um, competitive tendering process now, and that's kind of the feedback we're getting back from the market is that um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, the two-hour batteries, just because of the way that the the, the equipment um, manufacturing um, and uh, supply side is working, seems to be the the more optimal solution. Um, but uh, we're not finished that procurement activity yet. Hmm. That's all about the sort of the cost um, the, the cost side. I'm sort of um, also interested in the revenue side and how you get your return on capital. So um, it is about sort of you, you, you get um, you think you're going to get an economic return by time shifting solar in a grid sort of dominated by gas and also as you said before sort of improving the efficiency of gas and mm -hmm. yeah uh, yeah and, for and, sure so the, no, go ahead yeah so it it kind of works in a market where it's gas. It's it's hard to it's hard to get a, a battery for time shifting to work uh, in a in a market where, at the moment in an M, for instance, you know the average price is about you know thirty dollars or, or so. Um, the 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 thing about a battery is you just need a fixed charge, and depending upon how many times you charge and discharge uh, that battery, it just adds additional costs to the underlying energy input charge. So if you assume that your solar energy was going to be $60 a megawatt hour, if you can increase the battery utilisation so that it's more than one charge or discharge a day, maybe the cost of storing that energy in the battery on a levelised sense might only be $20 or $30 a megawatt hour. So that doesn't become cost prohibitive to the customer. If you're only sort of time shifting energy once a day, um, that cost could be $40 or $50, which might make it uncompetitive compared to other technologies that you might see in, in other markets. So. Uh, right now, the, the Pilbara is probably the ideal market um, for a certain amount of time shifting um, of energy using a battery. 
And you mentioned before about the demand from your major corporate customers, you know, the BHP or the big miners, essentially, BHP, Fortescue, Rio Tinto, and they want um, they want a more decarbonized grid. They want more renewables. You're talking about a 90 megawatt solar farm. Um, what's the case? What, what, how does the case look like for that? And what sort of level of renewables might we be able to contemplate for either, you know, those individual networks or imagining that they're all sort of agglomerated um, together? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, that's, a, that's the million-dollar question, uh, Giles, <laughs> uh, and th- and thanks for that. Um, our experience with, um, with, with Newman is getting to sort of 40 50% for us was pretty simple with the battery because the battery was there first. I think there are some examples on the uh, East Coast where you can see once you get over 25 or 30% renewable penetration, some of the networks in some of the states experience some difficulties. Um, around uh, power um, quality, uh, security of supply. Uh, so if you're thinking about the network devices that you need for the renewables to operate um, the way that they're intended on a network, uh, it's pretty easy to get to 50% cost effectively. Uh, you can do that with a battery or, or something like it. When you start getting to very, very high levels of renewable penetration, let's call it 80%. Um, I mean, if you're in a room with a bucket load of engineers, some will say 70, some will say 90 but it's just call it in that area. Um, the number of network devices that you need for that to start working uh, increases quite a lot because you're really reducing the amount of synchronous generation you have on the system at that point in time. And batteries supply some of the services. They don't supply all of them uh, well. Uh, and if we just talk about uh, fault current, for instance, uh, inverters can generally put you know, 1.7 times or 1.5 times um, the, the, the current in, in the battery into the fault current into the system. Synchronous generation does about 10 times, and so that's how you detect faults in the system and allow the protection to operate. If you don't have enough fault current, the system is not able to operate in a safe state. And that's why you see some people putting synchronous condensers around their networks, uh, which are large spinning masses which uh, allow you to, to control voltage but also provide a fault current and other services. And so. So long as you've got some pre-planning and those devices are in before you put the renewables down, you can get to quite high levels uh, quite easily. And with the right number of network devices, you can get to 100% if you want to, but that's in a world where you don't really care what you're paying for it because obviously as you start to wind off the the other services that the uh, uh, dispatchable uh, generation such as gas or pumped hydro or hydro or or, uh, coal bring into the system, it has to be replaced by something for the network to operate uh, stably. So I think I, I actually, I'll go on, Giles. Oh, no, no, I was, I was just wondering because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by this sort of, uh, there seems to be sort of deeper conversations now about the replacement and the use of grid form inverters and synchronous generation. I've noticed some discussion amongst engineers on LinkedIn in the last week and some some of them are just sort of saying that they imagine um, the um, the transition to a grid with just sort of solid state ele- um, electrics, you know, essentially batteries and inverters, um, much quicker than they ever, ever imagined before and possibly, you know, within 5, 10, 15 years if you can actually build enough wind and wind and solar so i'd imagine then that this is actually sort of um in the same way if you go back five years ago and you read the aemo reports about what's possible in battery storage and they just sort of said well probably the biggest we can imagine on the grid would be one megawatt well that's changed dramatically so i i, I can just imagine that um, we're in this rapidly evolving space and in five years time we might find that things are much easier simpler and and hopefully cheaper to achieve those goals uh yeah i certainly i certainly uh, couldn't tell you where we're going to end but uh, I've been 
in the power sector for 20 years and uh, every year it's been getting faster, the pace of change has been accelerating and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, the bounds of what's possible uh, are certainly moving a lot faster than, than a lot of us I think would have recognised five years ago as you said. David? Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I keep uh, forgetting the question uh, <laughs> that I wanted to ask, um, but uh, basically it seems to me that the, just let me ask generally about the cost of batteries since you were one of the first to install one in Australia. Uh, it does seem to me, uh, we read a lot about internationally the cost of them coming down. I, I'm forever reading BNEF reports uh, uh, or extracts that show how the cost is reducing. Uh, are you seeing uh, much evidence of that yourself? Uh, yes, for sure, in the, in, in the battery space. But uh, the thing about uh, construction of a battery is there's probably, I don't know, let's, let's call it four components to the battery. Um, and when we did the battery, it was about 25% was, was, was each of these uh, costs. So the balance of plants, so the cabling, the, the switchyard modifications, uh, all those, uh, the step-up transformers, all that sort of stuff. That's all very mature technology, very well known. There's not really any price changes happening in, in that side. 25% uh, was labour. Uh, and if anything, at the moment, labour in the Pilbara uh, and elsewhere in the country is going up a little bit. So uh, there's a cost increase there. Uh, inverters uh, are coming down a little bit as um, the factories are starting to open up and there's higher production rates and their costs are coming down. So there's a, a slight reduction in the, in the inverter cost, but I wouldn't have said it was enormous. But there is a big change in the battery costs. Uh, for sure. So uh, of the 25% that went into our battery, I'd say it's probably half that now in terms of the, in terms of the actual battery uh, component, but maybe overall there's been about a 33% reduction in the cost from when, when we did Newman. And an another question that uh, I occasionally get when I push my numbers out there is about the expected life of the battery. A lot of people think that the cells in a battery only last for, I don't know, 8,000 charges and full discharges and discharges. Um, but on the other hand, people at Fluence, for instance, as one supplier, uh, tell me that they can guarantee a, a, a whole system for 20 or 25 years. I just wondered if you wanted to comment on what you think a, a warrantable design life for a modern BES is these days. Well, that's, that's the specmanship that you get in all um, purchasing contracts. Um, there's, what the, there's what people will say the batteries can do and then there's what they're prepared to warrant because uh, there's a big difference because uh, if it doesn't meet that warrantable performance, then, then uh, any buyer has uh, recourse back to the supplier. So, you know, your, your warranties are generally two years. You, you, you design your battery and the OEM will give you a 10-year life so that at the end of that 10 years, so long as you've met the duty cycle that they've sold you, whether it's one discharge a day, two a day, doesn't matter how many cycles, um, generally speaking, they'll, they'll say the last 10 years. Um, they'll probably last longer with a, with a lesser performance um, than, than that 10-year that mark. But the OEMs are also starting to come in with ideas around providing uh, full life servicing where for, for a fee, they will look after the management of the batteries and replace those batteries that are starting to fail uh, as they fail so that for a 25-year life you have the, the performance that you expect. So it's, it's not a case of just put the battery down uh, and wait 10 years to replace them all. They'll, they'll do that proactively as the battery moves along for a fee. So I think that's where fluence are coming from.
Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you're essentially putting in more OPEX uh, or RepEx, I think you would call it in England, uh, uh, some replacement CapEx to keep the whole system going. That makes sense to me. Gary, if I, if I just looked away from West Australia, which is terribly exciting, I think, myself, because it, it, it shows what can be done and, and uh, you know, it's, it's supporting a lot of uh, economic activity. Uh, so you, you just wouldn't risk that if it wasn't working. And I look at Alinta's broader operations, which include uh, uh, Yang B and, and, and Bairnsdale in Australia and also 500 megawatts of gas generation in Queensland, which is probably benefiting from prices at the moment, notwithstanding that gas prices themselves have gone through the roof. Uh, do, do you, how do you feel about gas generation versus batteries if you were doing new sort of peaking services over on the East Coast uh, these days or, you know, or dispatchable power or, 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 or all these different uh, sort of requirements that we get as the coal generators gradually move out of, out of, out of, the, out of service? Now that's quite a tricky one that, that all the energy companies are, are grappling with uh, at the moment. Um, and it comes around to uh, really the, the energy-only market that you have uh, in, in the NEM. Uh, and that tends not to uh, compensate the, the dispatchable generators with the, with the, um, with the uh, large generators that provide all of these services that we've, we've become accustomed to and getting them for free over the last sort of uh, 30, 40 years. Uh, and so in the absence of you know, those uh, being compensated for those services and with suppressed energy price uh, on, the, on the East Coast, it's hard to see that there's the investment, um, the investment uh, uh, market for us to, to, to put new gas generation on the ground. I think you'd find um, there's quite a number of uh, energy companies that are also holding back on investing in, in thermal dispatchable generation because of uncertainty around the market. And I guess that's where having, a, having some sort of capacity payment um, for dispatchable generation, whatever it be, um, I'm kind of agnostic as a relation to, to technology at this point in time, such as in Western Australia, it always means that you have enough uh, dispatchable capacity to meet the requirements of the system, uh, irrespective of how much renewable generation uh, is in service. And so I think that's where the ESB... Um, and the 2025 market reforms for the NEM, it's very important that you get the right balance about how how the market is structured. Because uh, batteries in and of themselves, the reason why Newman works so well is that uh, it's a bit of a monopoly for us there in a way, and that we're the generator and the retailer, and there's no leakage of value to, to third parties, so there's no, no free rider problem. Whereas I do believe that the um, Hornsdale guys, um, they were commenting that you know, there is a bit of a, a free rider problem with the battery. Uh, a lot of people are receiving a benefit from it, but no one's actually paying for that benefit. And so I think you need to, to make sure that people are adequately compensated for their investments. And until that's resolved, I, I just don't see that there's going to be too much appetite to invest in um, gas generation in the NEM anytime soon. And, and uh, before I hand back to Charles, I'll just ask one question, uh, even though you're on the development side, I'll ask about Loyang B because... Uh, I feel without enough transmission um, that brown coal in Victoria is going to suffer from this ramp issues. We know there's a lot of wind and solar still to come in in Victoria 
and South Australia. It's been built now. If they could only <laughs> make it work, uh, uh, stuff like Stockyard Hill and Mirable and so on and more planned. And, you know, if, if how it's going to be hard for the brown coal generators to keep operating at uh, the same average hourly output, they'll have to sort of ramp down in the, in the day and, and ramp up in the evening and, uh, it, you know, to a financial accountant person like me who just does amateur reading, it looks like they'll have difficulty doing that. And, and so technically things could get tougher. Uh, yes, they already are tough. Um, David, um, another great question. Uh, we've spent about 170 million bucks at Loyang over the last year or two uh, upgrading those units uh, really looking hard at the, the minimum generation capability um, so that we're able to operate those units at, at much lower levels than, than they were ever designed to do. Uh, there's some, some great engineering going on down at Luoyang B with those guys and the OEMs to, to, to get those very low levels. Um, there's a lot of work being done on the, on the, on the generator controls to, to respond uh, in those markets uh, as well, uh, operating at such low loads. So, so the challenge is there now. And it's not getting any easier. You're, you're right. Um, what does that mean for, for, for coal-fired generators? Um, I think when you have a look in uh, South Australia, Alinta um, back in 2015 made a decision to, to shut the Flinders power station because we just couldn't get the power station to, to operate um, commercially in, in that market in, in, a, in an environment where we're constantly having to, to stop the unit. Uh, and then turn it back on again. Um, really, the gas generators were the ones who were, who were doing the bulk of that, that work. So um, I do see it getting harder for, for, for coal-fired power stations. But that being said, um, speaking from a Linter's perspective, Luoyang B is probably the most modern of, of those assets in Victoria. It's the newest, it's probably the cleanest, and, and so we see that we'll be able to respond to those, those signals a lot better than most. But, um, yeah, not not discounting the fact it's a real challenge for, for, for the guys down at Luoyang. Just on the um, the market mechanisms that you were talking about in relation to the ESB and particularly sort of, you know, some, some sort of capacity market, I mean, that was the biggest, con the most contentious point, I think, that came out from the ESB sort of, you know, um, draft um, ideas that it produced um, about a month ago. Um, I think even Alinta is supportive of a, some sort of capacity market, but didn't seem to be too happy about what they had proposed or the form of what they had proposed. And there was only probably one or two um, companies that seemed to be happy with it, and everybody else was sort of really quite um, unhappy about it and really wanted, if you're going to have some sort of market there, then you need to be able to sort of encourage sort of flexibility and adaptability and fast response and things like that. How do you think this is going to, um, wh wh where do you think this is going to land? Have you had any more discussions um, with the ESB? Um, how do you think this is going to end up? Well, this is well outside my, uh, my area of business, <laughs> so I'll, I'll caveat my answer on that one here. Um, well, I think the issue that, that, as I understand it, was um, if you have a, a sort of a more, a more propped up uh, retailer obligation to go and, and, and get the capacity, uh, the issue was that they didn't have to physically go and, and, and get the capacity as far as, as I get it. And I, I think where we were coming from and our submission was there needs to be a hard obligation and you have to have those, those physical contracts in place. It's not, you couldn't, you, you, we didn't want to see that you could just free ride the market because we didn't think that that actually would, would improve things. So I think there's, there's definitely a solution in there where uh, a more uh, firm uh, capacity obligation placed on the people who sell electricity into the market, it, it would probably satisfy the same sort of 
uh, mechanism that you have over here in, in Western Australia, which I think is probably the, the simplest model, uh, albeit uh, it was probably, uh, that's the one that Linter put forward uh, and, and, and wasn't really supported by the, by the ESB in that form. Mm-hmm. Okay. Charles, I'm gone, but I was just going to say I'm, I'm conscious that uh, we've taken up a good chunk of Gary's time uh, this afternoon. And Yes, well, look, we should probably just sort of wrap it up now, um, 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 David. Um, I'd just like to sort of mention um, just maybe just some of the other br- very brief news. Um, David, do you have any particular comment on the um, AGL decision to... Um, to um, close its gas generator early, and I just wonder if even if Brian, um, Gary's got a, um, a yeah, observation on that. Well, they're mothballing uh, two hundred megawatts of, of tips B, which is you know relatively expensive gas. I, I I want to comment that the electricity prices, uh, yes, they're going to go down in the future, but right now they're actually gone up, uh, you know, uh, uh, quite significantly. Prices in June were four times uh, on average in the NEM electricity prices that they were a year ago, uh, four times, not not 40%, four times. And the gas price, spot gas price uh, hit over $20 a gigajoule just recently. So these are very short-term things probably, but they're not as short-term as you thought. Mm. We also heard that the Calide uh, uh, power unit over 400 megawatts in Queensland that, that exploded uh, won't be actually coming back until uh, for, it will take 18 months to rebuild, uh, and yet they're still going ahead with it, which is kind of strange in a state that's got a 50% renewable target but no policy mechanism to achieve it. Uh, so people wonder how that can make good financial ses- sense, but on the other hand, you've got two or three partners in, in who own that, so presumably they all have to agree. So I, I, I guess that's, and then we're still seeing, I suppose, the slow connection process overall in all the generation that's been built at the moment and a pause in, 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 in new stuff. So my sort of feeling is that uh, there's a kind of brief window of happiness for all the old guard uh, uh, before the inexorable march of the new stuff uh, resumes. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The Kennedy Wind Farm was actually built about uh, wind, solar, and st- battery um, project. Um, was the first of its kind in this world. It was actually built nearly three years ago, and it's finally, finally sending power to the grid. So that just shows what can happen when things go um, really um, uh, send up. Um, Gary, um, Linter is an incumbent generator. Are you in a happy place at the moment? <laughs> Do you have any comment on any of the other little news items that we just mentioned? Oh, I probably coming from a linter. I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to uh, uh, not comment on, on the strategies and tactics of uh, of, of our competitors. But um, I, I think you know, the, the thing for us, any generator, is we make investments in projects. There's billions of dollars that we invest, uh, hundreds and hundreds of jobs, uh, and we just need investment certainty. So you know. A certainty around the way that the state and the feds are going to work together, certainty around carbon policy. Uh, that allows us to transition from where we are now to where people want us to be in the future. And it's what's hard for us is um, you know, not having a clear path. And I think if I, if I was going to say anything as someone who tries to do development across Australia, uh, legislative certainty, um, policy certainty is probably you know, my number one ask. Mm-hmm. Would you like them to sort of frame something along a 1.5 degree target and um, and then get on with it? Uh, I'll leave the science to, to other people. Um, in my job, I'll just do what we need to do. And very one very <laughs> nice question. Um, do you have any other sort of um, other projects imminent in the um, in the bigger grid? 
Uh, yeah, we're looking at a pretty massive wind farm uh, in the NEM. So I'm developing one of those. Um, oh, tell us more. about that much now. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, well, well, I'm sure I'll, you'll be the first off the, off the rank, Giles. Uh, you know about the pumped hydro project we're looking at. It's a pretty big pumped hydro. So uh, we do believe that those sorts of medium-term storage projects are going to be necessary as the renewables come on. Um, so they're, they're probably our two key projects uh, in the NEM. But, you know, Newman, I think, uh, and the Pilbara, it's really, that's the showcase of, of what we can do when, when we have um, you know, policy certainty, legislative certainty, um, large companies can get on, um, contract with each other, achieve uh, mutually satisfactory objectives, and, and employ technology in an in incredibly innovative way without being necessarily hamstrung by um, technical rules and, and networks that are, uh, that are probably out of date considering how fast, uh, how fast technology is changing. Uh, Gary, I just, you know, it's, uh, I'd like to say congratulations on how well you and Alinda have done over in West Australia. It really does set a great example. And thank you very thank much you. for joining the um, Energy Insiders podcast, Barry. We really appreciate it. Uh, anytime, Giles. Anytime. And thanks also to Alyssa. Thanks to you, David. Um, thanks to um, all uh, all you listeners out there. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, for their ongoing continued support for this podcast. And um, we look forward to coming back about this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.